meditate on that. While we're studying Romans chapter 6, you can multitask, can't you? You can think about two things at once. I'm, I'm sure you can. I can't, but you can. Romans chapter 6. Now, we're going to slow down tonight. Uh, we're only going to look at these first two verses. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've been taking uh, bigger portions of Romans. It just kind of depends on where we're at in Romans and what we feel like the Holy Spirit wants to minister to us. And so tonight we're looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. There are three terms you should be somewhat familiar with as you read and study the Bible. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. They describe the various stages, we might say, of salvation from the moment you accept Jesus Christ until you see Him face to face. Salvation begins with a judicial act of justification. It proceeds through a lifelong process of sanctification. It's completed when we meet Christ through death or at the rapture in an act of glorification. And we've been studying justification for the first five chapters of Romans. It's the act of God by which we are declared righteous based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's an instantaneous past act of God by which your record is cleared and you are guiltless before Him and declared righteous. Not made righteous, you are declared righteous and have a new standing with God. Sanctification is the continual process of God making us righteous until we are glorified. And as I said, we are glorified when after death or at the rapture, we lay aside our current physical bodies. Norman Geisler puts it like this. He says, justification is the act by which God gets us out of sin legally. Sanctification is the process by which God gets sin out of us actually. Now, justification requires no work on our behalf. We are justified the moment we believe God apart from any works of righteousness. Since justification is by faith, it's not a process or a performance. It's a pronouncement. If it were a process, it would take place gradually over a period of time as you perform certain commandments or sacraments. Justification is the pronouncement of the judge that you are not guilty by virtue of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. You are fully justified the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior by faith. God's sanctifying work does require our cooperation. It takes place throughout your entire lifetime on the earth. It's a process. We must yield to God's grace as He seeks to change us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now these next three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, describe for us why and how we who have been justified can cooperate with God in His work of sanctifying us, or we might say of completing the good work that he has begun in us. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say then? What I get from this is, what comes next? God justifies me, then what? Now remember in chapter 4, Paul declared that God justifies the ungodly. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. This is a radical concept to Paul's hearers. 
if God justifies us by grace while we are yet ungodly, based on belief and not any real change in behavior, not any keeping of the law or rituals or anything like that, God justifies us when we are yet ungodly, do we remain ungodly after we're saved so that His grace abounds all the more? In other words, what happens to ungodly sinners after we are justified? And this is, I believe, really the kind of the hinge on which this turns now is, you know, Paul has really hammered us and hammered his audience with justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And it then, you know, and and when you wrap your head around that and think God declares uh, righteous uh, the ungodly while you were yet sinners. He doesn't make you righteous. He declares you righteous. And and, uh, so if that's how you begin the Christian life, is that how you continue? If grace abounds while you're yet ungodly, then do you continue in an ungodly state so that God's grace can abound? Now, you're going to notice in these two verses, sin is singular, it's not plural. Sin is a noun in this chapter. The noun form denotes the nature of sin. The verb form denotes the sinful acts that would flow forth from that sin nature. We're not talking about continuing to commit individual sins. We're not talking about what some people call life-dominating sins. We're talking about the sin nature that we inherit from Adam. Here's my understanding of what is being asked in verse 1. If I had to bring us to this point and paraphrase what Paul is saying, I would say, since we are justified by grace while we are ungodly, do we remain ungodly in order for grace to abound even more? Or just, quite honestly, what happens next? What does God do with this ungodly sinner that he saved? Verse 2, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Certainly not is a strong statement. It's like saying, God forbid. Just because God saved us by grace as ungodly sinners, it does not follow that we continue in sin in order to reveal His grace. You know, um, if you're thinking, well, who would ever think this? Uh, Paul, in dealing with the church at Corinth, had a situation where the Corinthian church was, they believed, so into God's grace abounding that in their midst, every Sunday night when they got together, there was a guy who was uh, now living in sin with his father's wife. And uh, everyone knew it, the whole congregation knew it, and rather than deal with it, they were kind of proud of it. They said, well, look at how the grace of God is being magnified. We, we even accept uh, someone who is committing incest and offer them the right hand of fellowship. And Paul came along, actually, in his letter, and he says, offer him the right foot of fellowship, kick him out. That's not grace. Grace, we saw that last week, grace is incompatible with sin. And so, uh, it, it, you know, you might think, well, that's kind of a crazy idea, but it's not really so crazy because people uh, often think that about grace, that, well, the more, the more sin, the more grace abounds. And so Paul says, yeah, that's certainly not. And, and there's a sense in which 
he's saying that no really sincere Christian would ever come to that conclusion. I mean, there's just a check in your spirit, there's a witness in your heart that that just isn't right. Instead, we immediately discover as justified individuals, we have died to sin. Now, that sounds really important, and it is. When a person physically dies, he's free from all his former responsibilities and relationships. Uh, when, for a few years, we had the privilege of taking care of Pam's mom, and her, uh, she, she got very sick and congestive heart failure, and we had to move her up here and take care of her. And then uh, when Marlene died... Uh, we would still occasionally get notices from different people, uh, you know, relating to her. Uh, and, and we would just, you know, uh, say a magazine subscription. And we would just call and say, Marlene died. And that was the end of it, because you can't get anything from a dead person. Uh, and, and that's the analogy that Paul is using. When a person physically dies, he's free from all his former responsibilities and relationships. He can't be late for work and be fired. His parking tickets go unpaid. Uh, whatever debt you owe, those kinds of things, it's just you, you, the person's dead. You can't exact anything out of them. You're just as free from sin as a dead man is from paying parking tickets. I mean, it sounds like a crazy analogy, but that's true. Paul's saying... Not only do we not continue to be ungodly, you are dead to sin. You have died to sin. Now, you're not said, this is interesting, you're not said to be dying to sin as if it were being overcome a little bit at a time. No, there's a finality to it. Sin has no power over you because Paul is saying that sin, and remember this is singular, your sin nature is now dead in a very real sense. Since we have died to sin, Paul says we should not any longer live in it. You've been set free once for all from the controlling power of sin. We're going to go on in this chapter and Paul's going to explain that when Jesus died on the cross, you died on the cross with Him and your sin nature was crucified on the cross with Him and that was a one-time event and so you and I can, the Bible uses the word reckon or consider our old nature dead. Knowing and believing that you have died to sin is essential. If you're a Christian, it means that you can always say no to sin. Now, there are no steps involved in becoming dead to sin. It's done. You're dead. It happened for you at the cross. And it's not even something you could do for yourself if you wanted to because since it occurred at the cross, you know, crucifixion is one death that you can't do yourself. You can't kill yourself by crucifixion. At some point, you, you run out of hands to nail yourself to the cross. It has to be done for you or to you. And so Jesus said, when I died on the cross, you were crucified there with me and you died to sin. It's something you need to know and believe. Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. He says, your Christian living depends on your Christian learning. So you know what is true of you and then you put it into effect. Now, we still commit individual acts of sin. Remember, we're talking about the sin nature. It's, been, it's dead. We're dead to it. But we still commit individual acts of sin. Why? Because we still are in this body of flesh 
with its various lusts and habits. And we'll talk about that in subsequent verses. So your sin nature is dead. You've died to sin, meaning it no longer has power over you unless you yield yourself to the flesh which remains. Your old impulses and habits and desires. And so that's the the battle that we're going to find ourselves in. And as we go on in chapter 6, we're going to see the way that you apply this is by reckoning it to be true. You defeat the flesh, but you begin by understanding the truth that you have died to sin and it no longer has any power over you. Sadly, there are always going to be those who pervert the teaching about the grace of God and sanctification. In the early part of the 20th century, you may have heard of the Russian monk Gregory Rasputin. He taught and lived the idea of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. He believed, or he said he believed, that because those who sin the most require the most forgiveness, a sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys more of God's grace in those moments that he repents than the ordinary sinner. And so Rasputin used that as an excuse to live a notorious life of sin, and he even taught that this was the way to salvation. Now, Rasputin was an idiot, of course. Uh, This is not biblical, but... Uh, from a surface study of the Bible, uh, just looking at the Bible, and, you, and this is kind of what Paul is addressing in a sense. People are saying, well, if you were justified while you were yet ungodly, you didn't have to clean up your life, you didn't have to put on a suit, you didn't have to keep any commandments. Uh, you know how people, you invite people to church and they think, well, I'm not ready to go to church. I don't have the clothes and I want to give up this or give up that. I want to get ready to go meet God and make myself you know, acceptable to God. And Paul obliterated it. I says, you can never do that. There's nothing you can do. God has to save you while you are yet in an ungodly state and the grace of God abounds and it's salvation by grace through faith alone and faith is not a work. It's just a response. It's a receiving of God's gift. And so then if you're really understanding that, you think, okay, then what happens next? And if you're like Rasputin, you think, well, then I'll just continue to sin. I'll sin grossly and greatly and I'll continue to experience God's grace. And Paul says, yeah, that's not really the way it works. That's not the way to think because if you're genuinely born again, if you're justified, then you find that you have died to sin and there's a whole new dynamic going on in your life. Having been justified, God now begins a work of sanctification and you are encouraged to cooperate with it. Paul says in another place something like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't mean to work to be saved or to work to stay saved. He says, you've been saved, now work with God, cooperate with God because He is working to sanctify you, to set you apart, to make you holy, to make you righteous in a practical way. Now here's something interesting to notice since we're talking about this. Sanctification varies from individual to individual. Have you noticed that? I'm sure you have. As an illustration from the Bible, you could set forth Abraham and his nephew Lot. Abraham was Paul's prime example of justification by faith. We know that Abraham was saved. We know that Abraham remained saved. In fact, the paradise section of Hades was named after him. Jesus called it Abraham's bosom. And so uh, Abraham 
uh, kind of took over down there. The father of the faith. And, and people say, hey, I know there have been people down there before, but this is now Abraham's bosom because of, of uh, you know, the fact that he's my prime example of what it means to be justified by grace through faith. Lot, Abraham's nephew, is quite a challenge for us. He, in fact, continued to sin. Given a choice by Uncle Abraham where to settle, Lot set his eyes towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He moved closer and closer to those wicked cities. Remember, he was a kind of an itinerant uh, shepherd, but he kept moving closer to the city until he was in the city, living in them. The account in Genesis even indicates that he was one of the city leaders. Through it all, he had absolutely no influence on the morals or the religious uh, you know, proclivities of his peers. When the angels came to deliver Lot and his family, because Abraham had negotiated a deal, he says, you're not going to destroy it. Basically, what Abraham was saying is, you're not going to destroy it if Lot is in there, are you? He kept saying, how about for 50 and 40 and 30? Finally got down to 10, which was the exact number of Lot and his wife and his family. But, you know, and, so, and so Lot is there, and the angels come to destroy it, and the men of the town found out that the angels were there and they wanted to sexually assault them. And Lot says, no, don't do this. This is wicked. I've got a better idea. You can sexually assault my daughters. Mr. Godly. Lot argued with the angels after that. In the end, Lot had to be dragged out of the city. His wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. Then on consecutive nights, just when you think it couldn't get any worse... His daughters get him drunk and they sleep with him. I don't know about you, but the first time I read 2 Peter, I was shocked, I was astonished when Peter referred to Lot as a saved man whose righteous soul was vexed as he lived out his life in the world. Without the New Testament, without Peter's testimony, my conclusion would have been, Lot was an ungodly, unregenerate, wicked sinner that never really got it together. But Peter, very matter-of-factly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Lot, that righteous man, his soul was vexed. And uh, it's a very interesting comparison. So we would have to say that both Abraham and Lot were justified, or we could say saved, and they remained saved to the end. Yet their sanctification differed dramatically. So much so that if Peter didn't tell you that Lot was saved, you'd assume he either was not a believer or that he had along the way forfeited his salvation. With each, uh, excuse me, we each cooperate with God in sanctification differently. You could almost see it as a spectrum with Abraham at one end and Lot at the other. Abraham was not without his falterings. He wasn't a perfect man. No one is. Lot, though, seemed to be without any faithfulness at all. Yet both were justified and Scripture tells us they remained so to the end. You might be thinking, Gene, what you're saying will encourage people to continue in sin. Well, that's what the Romans who were hearing Paul's letter were thinking. If I'm eliciting the same response that Paul did, then I must be saying the same thing Paul said. Now, I'm not trying to elicit that response. I'm not trying to, you know, get out on the edge and, and be, 
you know, edgy and weird. It's just the response you get when you preach grace, abounding grace. Two men, both justified, you have to say, because the Bible says that Lot was, Lot was a righteous man. doesn't mean he was, obviously he wasn't personally righteous. It means he was declared righteous by God. It means he was saved and his soul was vexed, even though his witness was terrible. The discussion also touches upon what is sometimes called the security of the believer or eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. Theologians have struggled with it and they continue to do so and and we struggle with it too. I'm sure everyone here has a position uh, on it and what they believe and we can coexist in, you know, with different beliefs about uh, the perseverance of the saints. That's not a problem. Along with the discussion of the security of the believer, an important component of it is the doctrine of assurance. The assurance of salvation uh, is twofold. You might put it like this. Is it possible to know absolutely and with confidence that you are saved? And secondly, is it possible to know uh, that if you... uh, Let me put it this way. Is it possible if you believe yourself to be saved to know that you will remain saved? And so on the one hand, can I really know that I'm saved? On the other hand, can I know that I will continue to be saved? A key scripture in any discussion of security and assurance would have to be 2 Timothy 1.12. In the King James Version, it reads like this, For I know, Paul's talking, he says, For I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. It would seem from that declaration of Paul's that you can both know with certainty you are saved and that you can know with certainty that you will remain saved. Some of the confusion about the security and the assurance of the believer, I think, can be cleared up if you keep the stages of salvation separate in your way of thinking. Remember, we pointed out that first you are justified, then you are being sanctified until you are finally glorified. Security in your salvation, what is it based on? It would have to be based on justification. It's based on your justification, which is an act of God upon you, declaring you righteous when you are yet ungodly. When you accept Jesus Christ, you're declared righteous. You're justified. You have a new position before God for eternity. It's an act of God in time, an instantaneous one-time act. Your only involvement was that you believe God. Sanctification, that requires you cooperate, and you see even in the Bible that some believers cooperate more than others. Let me pose two questions for you to ponder. Maybe you've never thought about it like this, or maybe you have. I don't know, but it was interesting to me. A lot of times, we can, uh, you know, can a person lose their salvation? Can they forfeit their salvation? Uh, you know, if they continue in sin, habitual life-dominating sin, you know, those kinds of things. And, and those are interesting questions. Here's a way, another way of posing the same question. Can a justified person Remember, you're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ while you're yet ungodly. God declares you righteous. Can a justified person become unjustified and then get re-justified by God? I mean, how does that really work? Can God justify you and then say, now I've unjustified you? Based on what? I justified you based on what I did at the cross, solely my work, You had no bearing on it whatsoever except 
you responded to the gospel and, and received the free gift. Now, because your sanctification isn't going very well, I'm going to unjustify you. And if you want to get saved again, then, you need, then I will have to declare you righteous again and again and again. It, just, it doesn't make sense, really, when you put it like that. At least not to me. Maybe it makes sense to others. And then second, to go along with that, is there any indication in the New Testament that a person who is indwelt by the Spirit of God can become unindwelt by the Spirit of God and then re-indwelt by the Spirit of God? I, I don't see it in the Scripture. No. People who talk about those who forfeit their salvation or lose their salvation, they don't talk a lot about the indwelling of the Spirit. They talk about being in the body of Christ or out of the body of Christ. But it seems to me that once you're born again and the Holy Spirit takes up His residence in you, He doesn't leave you. Or at least there's no indication in the Scripture that He will leave you. There is in the Old Testament. There's some talk about the Holy Spirit coming and going, but even then it's for the empowering of service. Uh, but in the New Testament, it, it, it appears to me, unless I'm missing something, that once you're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in you. Now, the distinction that I make, and it's certainly not a perfect one, it, it can be argued against, is whether or not a person was genuinely saved in the first place. There are examples in Scripture of genuinely saved individuals who nevertheless sinned heinously but remained saved. There are examples of those who were never really of us even though they professed faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, the answer is a person can know that they're saved. This is really what the spark that started the Reformation. Martin Luther, reading Romans, realized, I can know that I'm saved. Because I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a done deal. Whereas the Roman Catholic tradition he was in told him that salvation began by grace through faith but had to continue through works till you get to the end of your life and you're never really sure that you're saved and you're probably not. You probably still have to suffer in purgatory. That, that was the teaching and it is the teaching of Roman Catholicism. And so Luther and the Reformers came to the understanding that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and that you are justified by God in, at, a, at a crisis moment. Uh, and so, um, you know, if you're, I, to me, if you're genuinely saved, you're saved. I just don't know if you're saved. Because the Bible also said, Paul talks about people who were with him John says the same thing, but they were never of us, he says. They, Paul had people who ministered with him. And he says they went out from us, they weren't of us. And it sounds convenient, but it's the best answer I have. I don't know if a person... So if I look at... If, a person, if you come to me and say, well, this guy said he was saved and now... He's living like he's not saved. And I said, well, I, I don't know if he was ever genuinely saved. I, I believe that if he was genuinely saved, he's going to remain saved, even if he sins heinously. And you think, well, that's not fair. Well, God, you know, in the New Testament, some of those people he killed. So that's an argument in behalf of what I'm saying, because God looked at people and he says, huh, you're sinning heinously. You're one of my children, so guess what? I'm going to kill you right now. I'm going to take you home early because I can't have this going on. 
and uh, in the Corinthian church that Paul, we talked about earlier, Paul, he said, some of you are taking communion in an unworthy manner. And he says, and some of you are sick because of it, and some of you have died. Uh, and, and it wasn't that God was punishing non-believers. He was, he was taking believers home to be with him. And so it's very interesting. You know, I don't, I don't, and this is the thing. You know, people don't say that because then people will sin. Paul said, no, certainly not. You shouldn't sin. But the truth is, Christians sin in the most heinous ways. They do it in the Bible. They do it in the world. And they remain saved if they were genuinely saved. I just don't know. And so you can have assurance you are saved and you can have assurance that you will remain so in Jesus Christ. If, if you don't want to have that assurance, that's your prerogative and there are some scriptures that you can appeal to as well. Uh, but that's kind of the way I've seen it over the years. Now in... In these scriptures here in Romans 6, we're not really talking to or about the unsaved or the severely backslidden. Paul doesn't anticipate people are going to get all excited about being sinners now that they've been justified. I mean, the moment, if you were saved later in life, if you were born again, maybe, maybe to Harvest Crusade or something like that, was your first thought, great, now I can be a bigger sinner than I was ten minutes ago. God saved me by grace through faith. I'm an, I, while I was yet ungodly, uh, in fact, I'm half stoned right now. I came to the Harvest Crusade, hi, I'm going to go right out and blow my mind on twice as much dope because now God's grace is really going to be poured out. No one thinks that. Why? Because the minute you're justified, whether you realize it or not, you have died to sin and the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in you. And then the truth is, all of us fail in perfect cooperation with the sanctifying work of God. Some of us fail more than others. Some of us fail more obviously than others. Uh, But God continues to do that good work in us. And so we're declaring here in these verses that you can walk with God in victory over sin, over sinning, because your old sin nature is a dead corpse that you have no reason to yield to. That means that the world and the devil, when they come to you, they're tempting a dead man. And dead men can't do anything unless you uh, yield yourself to those impulses. Amen?